Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Professor Jeanette Parks who heads up the Division of Radiation Oncology in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Cape Town and Hooterskeer Hospital. Some of the portfolios that she runs include adult and pediatric neuro-oncology, sarcoma clinic, and pediatric radiotherapy. She also has an interest in stereotactic radiosurgery, and she has been part of several committees tasked with writing guidelines and protocols for treatments of children in developing countries. Welcome to the show, Professor Parks. Thank you, Amelia. It's great to be here. To begin with, the Department of Radiation Medicine at the University of Cape Town houses radiation oncology, radiology, nuclear medicine, as well as medical physics. Please, can you tell us more about the department as well as the associations between the university and Hooterskeer Hospital? Yes. Um, so the Department of, of Radiation Medicine comprises the four divisions that you've just mentioned. Each of those divisions runs their own service and has their own divisional head. And all of the staff that work within Hooterskeer Hospital, the, the medical staff, the doctors, are joint staff of both Hooterskeer and the university. So they have both clinical um, and education and research portfolios, as well as administrative portfolios, through both the hospital, the Western Cape government, and through the University of Cape Town. The four departments all function individually with their own issues. So um, for us, the clinical service is is absolutely massive. Uh, Radiology um, has got a a footprint on the platform across the metro. So they they help with services across multiple um, hospitals in Cape Town, not just Hrutuskir Hospital. Um, They also um, have staff. We also have staff in the Children's Hospital, so Red Cross Children's Hospital. The same with nuclear medicine. Um, So the the posts at at UCT comprise Red Cross Hospital and Hrutuskir Hospital. Um, and some of our some of our equipment is actually based at Tigerberg Hospital. So we do have patients that attend Tigerberg Hospital for certain types of scans as well. And then medical physics is not doctors. Um, the, these are scientists. Um, medical physicists are sort of clinician scientists that provide a service for the other three divisions. So they provide support for oncology, radiology, and nuclear medicine. You have a massive network. It is a massive network and it requires a massive team of people. So not one of these um, divisions within radiation medicine can really function without a team. We have a huge team of people, the scientists, the the engineers who keep the machines going, the radiographers and uh, RTTs uh, who are the oncology radiographers that both do the planning and run the machines. Um, We have IT people. Uh, we have our, our chemotherapy nurses within oncology as well. Um, and we have obviously very close associations with a lot of other departments, both surgical and medical within the hospital, in order to run our multi, multidisciplinary teams, which is where we make decisions on all patient management. 
And patient-wise, if I remember correctly, I think you, you see in the region of about 3,000 patients each year. Yes, we see, we see about 3,000 new patients a year. That includes patients that will need um, all aspects of cancer care. So in Cape Town, we run a system that's a little bit different to the Johannesburg system where oncology is divided into radiation and medical oncology. In Cape Town, it's all done in a single discipline, clinical oncology, which is the department that we run. So we run radiotherapy services, chemotherapy services, and we also do some palliative care. Looking forwards towards the future, what would you say are some of the milestones that you want to achieve in your position? Well, radiation medicine, um, taking over the sort of the headship of radiation medicine is, is relatively new for me. I've been um, the divisional head of radiation oncology for quite a long time. So we have, um, you know, we've worked quite hard to to take things forward in the Department of Radiation Oncology. In the, in the other divisions, our, our main issue uh, relates to staffing. So it's it's we have quite a high staff attrition to the private sector in all of the in all of the divisions of radiation medicine, which is um, probably because it's one of the more lucrative areas to be in in the private sector. Um, but it, it, it's more than that. It's also um, just relates to sort of issues within the system itself. So as a priority for me, getting full staffing within radiology um, and expanding the services of nuclear medicine, which is a very exciting and upcoming um, speciality, especially the, the sphere of theranostics, which is using radioactive traces to actually treat various different diseases. Th those will be priorities for us moving forwards. And when you speak about steranostics, my, let's say, layman's understanding is that it means that you have the capability of being very specific on where you target treatments in, in terms of therapy to particular organs and tissues. Exactly. So you have certain traces that are taken up for physiological reasons by specific tissues, and you can, you can use that um, in order to target at different uh, tissues which may have uh, tumors um, or tumors that have spread um, in order to treat those more effectively. So things like prostate cancer um, and various other types of cancer as well. Um, thyroid cancer um, we, has been in use for quite a long time, but that's a bigger and bigger area of nuclear medicine, which used to just involve diagnostic scanning, now also involves therapy. It's such a developing field that continues to change almost on, on a daily basis. How do you manage to keep up with yeah. new developments? <laughs> um, yeah, it is. Um, all, of the, all of the divisions of radiation medicine are, in fact, like that. The, the sort of ever-changing sphere means that we, we are obliged to um, attend conferences, have academic meetings um, to keep up to date with our knowledge. We have relationships with several um, overseas organizations uh, which help us uh, to uh, keep up to date and to allow sort of cutting edge um, input in terms of projects. Um, but it's, it, 
it is difficult, uh, both in the chemotherapy world, drug therapy world, and also in the, the technical equipment and um, protocol type of world. So um, all of those things are a constant challenge, and we work on that continuously in order to try and make sure that what we deliver is cutting edge. And in consideration of, of aspects of cutting edge, cancer and I was honestly quite surprised when I was looking at some of the research that it's the second leading cause of death worldwide. According to the World Health Organization, in 2018, 9.6 million people died from cancer. And then furthermore, that 70% of deaths from cancer occur in low and middle income countries. More than 90% of the high-income countries reported treatment services that are available. But when we look towards low-income and, um, and middle-income countries, that reduces to 30%. There's, so there's yeah. huge discrepancies between treatment and death rates of cancer between high-income and low-income countries. With South Africa falling into the lower category, what are your perspectives? This has been the, the subject of, of my passion over the last sort of 10 years um, of my career has been exactly this, is um, the disparity between um, upper, upper and lower, um, both upper middle and lower middle income, and as well as upper and lower. So there's, there's huge differences in the quality of the treatment that is given to those countries. The big problem that we have identified from a radiotherapy point of view is that although we've got about 70% of the, of the cases worldwide of cancer, we only have about 15% of the personnel available to treat cancer, oncology personnel. So this relates to doctors, radiation oncologists, it relates to um, medical physicists, and it also relates to radiographers, RTTs, um, therapy radiographers. So um, we've actually initiated a, a large program within our department uh, two programs, in fact, the one which involves training international registrars uh, specifically for Africa, because Africa is the most poorly resourced of, of all the continents in the world um, in terms of, of cancer personnel. Um, so we, we train doctors um, for countries in Africa. Um, and the second project that we've got is um, a, a partnership between ourselves and the Cape Peninsula University of Technology and a um, machine um, Corporation International, uh, where we train teams of, of a, a doctor, a physicist, and a radiographer. They come into our department for a period of about three weeks. We've got some highly specialized training equipment, and we we teach them how to transition from from sort of poor quality 2D radiotherapy to a much higher quality 3D type of radiotherapy. So technical training and upgrades. Um, quality assurance. We also teach procurement um, and do some sort of more detailed training on specific areas of the commonest cancers in Africa. So, so these are these are huge projects. Um, they're ongoing. Uh, we've also been involved with the the WHO. The World Health Organization has recently uh, declared children's cancer as one of their priorities moving forward. So we've been involved. Um, in various different um, working groups within the WHO to try and um, upgrade 
cancer services for children in various low and middle income countries. So we we very involved on all of those fronts. And looking at some of those projects, it also speaks to your larger problem of, of trying to curtail staff attrition through greater development and forming these partnerships. Correct. So um, these projects, I, I think, are they, they, they're exciting, you know, it's exciting to work on these projects, you feel like you're making a difference. And so when we work on these projects, we, uh, we kind of empower the staff, uh, we find that when you teach this kind of uh, technical knowledge, it, it upgrades your own knowledge. So, so these are the types of projects that I think do help to keep staff within the, the state sector. Um, the the fact that we can also subspecialize within oncology helps as well uh, because of the huge numbers. So this the state hospitals see about eighty five percent of the of the population of South Africa. We have huge numbers of patients, and because of that, we can develop um, niche expertise, uh, and that's that's quite attractive as well. So you you'll have seen from the the areas of oncology that I've been involved in, um, they they're pretty niche areas um, and in a in a private practice that would form a very tiny part of a of a busy general oncology practice so one of the other areas that does make us attractive is the fact that that our staff can sub-specialize in a particular niche area of oncology um, and become a sort of authority on that area and talking of those niche areas and given that we are a, a gender program a lot of the people's names that I saw seem to be that you have quite a few female members of staff. Do you feel or consider the the field and the discipline to be more attractive to women? Um, I think oncology per se is quite attractive to women. It's 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 a a nurturing um, kind of a role that the oncologists tend to play with the patients. So from, from that point of view, it is. It, but I, I don't think that's the full story. So in our department, what you say is absolutely correct. Um, all of our consultants currently are females. But part of the reason for that is the attrition um, into the private sector, which is um, very lucrative, um, tends to... the 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 male doctors tend to migrate more than the female doctors. So we somehow need to make the, the public sector more attractive and um, or, or to try and to introduce some other types of, of interventions where, where people can double up both in private and, and public so that you don't lose that um, brain power because, as you say, 85% of the South African population is served by the public sector. Staying on the, the topic of women, I mean, we've got Women's Month is, is just around the corner. In your opinion, what's the state of gender equality in South Africa? Um, you know, I you know I work in a, a, a university and in in a system where I, I think that. Gender equality is is pretty good within the hospital and within the university. Um, as you've seen, there's quite a lot of, of female um, heads of various departments and of the university itself at, at UCT. Um, in the corporate sector of South Africa, I think it's it's probably less good. 
Um, and the the reasons for that are multifactorial, I, I think. Um, but I, I do get the sense that gender equality is becoming a bigger and bigger issue, that transformation in terms of gender equality um, as as well as um, in terms of, of empowering um, populations that have been disadvantaged in our previous regime have has come to the fore so that so that we are slowly seeing a change to that status quo um, and and an encouragement of of gender equality through through our system so I think through the university probably we see that earlier than in the corporate sector but we are definitely seeing some changes uh, within our system which which is as it should be do you think that being part of, of UCT, University of Cape Town, having this really strong presence of female leadership, uh, we've got our Chancellor, Dr. Precious Muloy Mutsepe, Vice-Chancellor, Professor Mamukheti Pheng, the three deputy vice-chancellors, some of the deans leading faculties, if that perhaps contributes towards fostering positive gender equality in the institution? Yes, I think I think that it does. I, I think that there um, there are very uh, strong and inspirational leaders um, at UCT, which we are which we are very fortunate to have. Um, I have to say, from a, a personal point of view, I I have um, felt mentorship, and I have been supported by colleagues of of both sexes as I've come sort of through the different systems at UCT. So, so I, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that those people do, they, they are inspirational to a younger generation. Um, but I, I do think that not all of the inspiration comes, comes from women. I, I think that there's a, 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 a general spirit of mentorship for um, for people that put their hands up and are, are willing to do the work and are willing to um, have a vision and a mission. And there's generally a, quite a great sense of support for those visions and missions. So um, I'm, I'm not sure that that is gender specific, but it's certainly, certainly the female leaders are inspirational. I think it shows signs of, of progress. It shows signs of, of change that your horizons are, are unlimited, that you can um, move up the hierarchy within the institution or you've got options as students to, to become whatever it is that you want to be. Absolutely. So I, I don't think that there's any, any limits to that. And in terms of your progression through, throughout your, your career and, and your journey. Have you encountered any gender challenges that, that you needed to overcome? Um, you know, um, in, the, in the early years, no. I, I don't think that there were, um, there were gender challenges in, in the early years of my career. As you, as you rise um, up the ladder, there it, it it tends to be sort of historically that the people that are above you um, are a certain gender or a certain color, um, and I, although those systems are changing, um, I, you know it, it it does 
one is sometimes aware of it. And it does, it has at times felt like I had to work harder or be better at what I did in order to, to stand out in order to, to, to get recognition. So I, you know, it's 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 not been a huge factor for me, but it, there definitely have been times when I've felt that it would have been that I would have had an easier path if I'd been a man. It's interesting that you you say that, and it it, it dovetails to one of the the questions that I want to ask you next on a study that McKinsey ran on issues of likability bias where they were comparing different attitudes. So you could express the same characteristic as a man and as a woman, but depending on if you were a man or a woman, it would be perceived differently. And one of the things that they looked at was the issue of likability bias, where success and likability are positively correlated for men, but negatively correlated for women. So if a woman is competent, she doesn't seem nice enough. But if she seems nice, she's considered less competent. And often these types of biases surface in the way that women are described both in passing and also in their performance reviews. So when a woman, on the other hand, asserts herself, she's called aggressive, ambitious, or or out for herself. But when a man applies those same types of, of characteristics or actions, he's deemed as being confident and strong in what would you say is your, your opinion on on the subject having you know worked worked through in your career and and possibly being exposed to some of these elements um yeah i i i read this um and i i, I was interested to to see that and I, I think that there is there is a grain of truth in that i, I think that the the women that tend to do well, certainly in in the hierarchies of the universities or in corporate on corporate ladders, do have to be quite assertive, um, and that's that's not always well liked, and perhaps it is perceived differently um, in men. Um, I myself have been quite lucky in the world that I've worked in in pediatrics, where um, where I think that the both the men and the women are are quite likable. And um, maybe it's got to do with, with treating children and working in multidisciplinary teams. But um, certainly the, the people that I've worked with, I've, I've, always, I've always felt were, were likable and successful, whether they, were, whether, whether they were male or female. And it's the relationships that you form around you that, um, that at the end of the day help you, help you along, help you be who you who you could be and support you into the roles that you are prepared to take on. Um, and those, those are, those are sort of defined by, by a common goal, a common, a common mission um, and whatever it is that you've decided that you want to do. So, um, so I, you know, from a, from a personal point of view um, in the pediatric world, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that that holds, uh, but maybe in the corporate world it is more so. And I think, like you said earlier, looking at gender equality, it is multifactorial, and we we can't underestimate the role that environment plays. And in in pediatrics, dealing with children, uh, they they tend to see through things. 
Uh, yes. So, so dealing with children is, is always interesting because you deal with the children and the parents. Um, dealing with adolescents is probably even more difficult than dealing with children. Children are, are quite accepting. Um, once they, once you have a relationship with them and they know what's going to happen to them, they're quite accepting. Adolescents are not. They accept nothing. <laughs> so you have to you have to really work hard to persuade adolescents that they need to do what it is that you think that they need and what their parents need. So, um, so that's a particular group of patients that we, that we um, sort of only have recently recognized as being a, a, a separate group from children and adults. So we call them AYAs, adolescents and young adults. And these are patients with with cancer at a young age that really have massive obstacles to overcome. Um, so we tried to we tried to bring in some some different techniques and some different ways of of dealing with those kinds of patients. So they are different to adult patients. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware that children's cancers are actually way more curable than most of the adult cancers. So um, in high income countries, about 85% of children that are that are diagnosed with cancer will be cured. So we deal not only with the actual treatment of, of that category of patients, we also deal with all the issues that they take forward into life as survivors, because they often have, have issues, particular issues um, relating to either their, their tumors or their treatment that they carry forward as, as risks or as morbidities um, into their lives that have to be dealt with for their whole lives. So that's, that's a very interesting part of pediatrics as well. It, it's actually almost a, a lifelong journey when you come through and you, you are, you're treated for the condition. But as you say, because of, of the treatment, because of the nature of, of the disease, that you have got further complexities that you'll need to manage or, or negotiate in your life to, to lead a full and productive life. Absolutely. Uh, survivorship has become one of the big issues as you get better and better at treating cancers. You are dealing with patients who are cured, but who who may have issues relating either to their cancer or their treatment for years and years and years to come. And those range from sort of increased risk of second, second malignancies to um, other health risks like an increased chance of of cardiovascular issues or increased chance of, of fertility issues, increased growth issues, hormonal issues, um, and of course, psychological issues, sometimes schooling issues uh, due to problems with memory or concentration for children that have had brain tumors. So all kinds of issues that patients deal with long-term um, that the community has to find ways of, of um, helping survivors deal with the issues that would, that they've that they have to um, deal with on a daily basis because there's more and more people that are cured. Professor Tox, thanks for sharing some of the the technical aspects, but also some of the more emotive and and community driven aspects uh, around survivorship of of cancers and also the high curable rate that we see in the pediatric segment. Now, turning towards more of a personal perspective, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. 
So, for instance, some people speak about perseverance. Uh, others talk about hard work. One of my guests spoke about the fear of failure. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success? Um, I think I've been I've been very lucky in the sense that I I sort of came to oncology fairly unexpectedly. It wasn't something that I had decided to do um, over a long period of time, but um, I had spent quite a few years doing doing various different kinds of medicine um, and then decided that I did want to specialize in something which which held technical aspects, held aspects of of patient care, face-to-face um, interactions with patients, um, and sort of came into contact with oncology and, and loved the concept. So I, I was I was very lucky in the sense that I that I came into a speciality that has got such a wide degree of interest from from technical sort of clinical um, um, research education um, right at the beginning, and then being in a center like I am, I again, was extremely fortunate in the multidisciplinary teams that I worked with, that there were people that were inspirational, that were quite a lot, um, some of them quite a bit older than me, um, involved in the multidisciplinary clinics who inspired a, a, a real um, need to be as good as I could be and a need to be an advocate for the, the groups of patients that I was treating. So, um, um, in particular, I can think of um, Professor Claire Stannard, who was in our department. She um, she was um, a person that I, I looked at and thought, wow, I, I need to be as good as she is at what she does. Um, so that that was a sort of defining moment for me. And I, I, I worked very hard to, to be like her. Um, and I, I also made sure that I had close relationships with people that I perceived as as being the kinds of people with the kinds of skills that I wanted to have. So I think it's a it's about relationships. It's about um, aligning your visions and missions with like minded people and leveraging off their their interest and their skills and their passion um, in order to keep your yours going all the time, because it's not always easy to do it on an ongoing basis all by yourself. It's, it's, it's much nicer to work in a team with people you like, whose visions are aligned. So that would be, that would be um, what, I, what I would say is, is most important is the relationships and aligning your visions and your missions with other passionate people around you. And thinking about that alignment with other passionate people, they do provide some aspects of, of aspiration and motivation. And I think that role modeling is, is perhaps underestimated uh, in terms of the, 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 the place that it has on helping people to develop. For sure. I think, I think role modeling is, is uh, essential. I mean, I, I think that you asked any successful person um, that question, they would find people that they that they found um, inspirational during their sort of um, their journey, um, getting to where they where they are at this point in time. So role modeling is essential, and and I, I think it's a I think it's a really critical part of being an academic in an academic institution is 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 passing on that kind of 
that kind of department that provides the kind of environment where young people can look up and see people that they that they want to be like. Um, so I, that's I, I see that as a, a critical part of of my job is to not just to be a role model, but to create role models within the staff that our junior staff can look up to. And also to when when um, selecting trainees uh, who are going to be specialists within our discipline, that we look for people with particular attributes, people that that can take that that can easily be taught, easily can um, be mentored, um, and that have got that that passion and that vision. It's very selfless if I can put it that way and it also really evokes this whole view of standing on the shoulders of of others so that you can keep moving the the discipline forwards and keep passing that knowledge on to the next generation so that it, it builds it doesn't stagnate exactly I, I think I think that's that's in the academic in, uh, um, department certainly the, the Faculty of Health Sciences I, I think that's a, a critical part um, of the learning and the teaching that we do and reflecting way back in time now can you share with us some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up um, Yes, so I, I was extremely fortunate. I came from a, a family where both of my parents were uh, professionals. They were both uh, very supportive. We would all do what we wanted to do and uh, develop the passions that we were that we were most interested in. So, um, so I was I was very lucky in that way. Um, I have continued to. Um, have a really good relationship with both of my parents who now live in Cape Town. Um, I grew up in Peter Maritzburg, but they've been extremely supportive of me throughout my career because there's times when, when it's tough, uh, when you've got a, a young family, when there's work commitments, there's home commitments. So they were extremely supportive of me, of, of my family as well. Growing up, I've got a, a husband who's also extremely supportive of um, the job that I've got, the role that I play, um, and hasn't been uh, afraid of of um, taking on some of the the home front responsibilities. Um, so I, those are things that um, are part of the balance that you talk about. Uh, that that are the the things that are very important if you're going to take on a role like I have because because of the time commitments. You've mentioned a few things in our conversation which have really stood out for me. One, about relationships, and secondly, about support, which I think are, are instrumental in any career of being able to, to advance, of, of not being held back. That's right. I think it's very difficult to advance um, in any job as much as you want to if you don't have those things. So... Um, you know, I, I don't think that I could do this job without the support that I've got. Um, you know, my family, my husband and children and, and, and my, my parents and also my colleagues. 
Um, and I, I, I do think that, you know, you can only be as good as your, your limiting factor. And um, if those if those factors are, are all supportive around you, then then it's 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 easier to to be able to make a difference and to follow your your goals, um, whatever those might be, you know, and your the the commitments that you've got. But it's it's there's no doubt in my mind that the relationships and the support are are absolutely key, and that that nobody can really survive. Um, in a doggy dog kind of world or in top administration, which can be very frustrating at times without that kind of support. And continuing with that vein of aspiration, as we close out our conversation today, could you share a few words of inspiration for young women and girls in Africa that are listening to us? Um, I would say to young to young women that they should um, aspire to be everything that they set their dreams on. They should never feel that they should be held back, either by the quality of their um, of their education. If they are motivated, they can still work towards the things that they want. There's opportunities out there that can be taken. There's ways of accessing those opportunities. And they should never be afraid to try and set up the kind of support structures around them that will allow them to go to the top because there's no reason why women can't, can't be in the top jobs provided they've got the support that they need. The same goes for for men. I think that they also need support structures around that. I think just in general, um, women are better at supporting men. Men are at supporting women in top roles. Um, And maybe that's one of the reasons why we see more men in the top roles. But women are certainly no less competent and no less able to do those jobs. And young women shouldn't feel held back in, in any way if that is their aspiration. Thank you for those great words of of motivation of being able to dream big and turn those dreams into reality. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much. I've I've enjoyed chatting to you, Malaya. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Jeanette Parks, who heads up the Division of Radiation Oncology, Faculty of Health Sciences, as well as the Department of Radiation Medicine, the University of Cape Town and Hooter Skier Hospital.